want to show my appreciation to Harry, particularly getting to work with him as an honor. But I, I would say, Harry, if, um, if, if you see it going down today and you need to give me the oomph, just do it from there. Because, I mean, that would really be embarrassing if you just walked up in the middle of my preaching and just said, no, Adam, this is how you have to preach that. And you just cut right in. So just give me some thumbs up or down from the front row. That would help me today. And I want to thank uh, Dr. MacArthur because it was his invitation to come out uh, to come here and serve. And though coming to Master's University wasn't still serving in the local church, as Harry said, it is still serving the local church because all of you come from local churches. All of your pastors are excited that you're here for the season you're here to get equipped to go back out in whatever various capacity you're going to go back out to and build the kingdom here. And so we're pumped for that. We're thankful that you're here. And so I'm thankful that I was invited to come here. Also thankful for Joe Keller and CJ and the rest of SLS. As uh, us East Coasters say, I'm actually not from North Carolina originally. I'm from Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh to be exact. And we just call these kind of people like Joe and CJ good people on the East Coast. They're good people. And uh, we're thankful for them. And then last but not least, the students and staff. Uh, you have loved and welcomed our family in the short amount of time we've been here. Some of you have been over at our house already helping us move in, unpacking our stuff and watching our kids. And, and that's what just makes this place unique and such a joyful place to be. I mean, if there was one word I had to use to describe Masters University, it's joyful. I look around as I walk back and forth between buildings on the campus, and there's just a joy that permeates through the student body and the staff here that's infectious. And that's a good thing. I'm thankful for that, that I just look around and that even brings my joy in Christ up to another level. Maybe last week it was down a little bit because nobody trusted each other. <laughs> and some of you think like, oh, I saw the schedule. Adam, you were getting up to preach next week. Somebody just gave me a sign for something. Uh, maybe that was a dorm or something. You were showing me a gang symbol. I don't know that that's legal here. But anyways... Um, Last week, you know, some were like, oh, you were going to preach in chapel. That's why you got your hair cut. You wanted to look, you know, cleaned up. And that wasn't it. Midweek, I got my hair cut so I could stay alive and gotcha. I was, I was trying to change my appearance. And it didn't work. Abby Olson, I believe, tracked me down Friday, leaving the back. I mean, I had seen, you know, I had been told she was looking for me, hanging out outside the office. Nobody even knows where I work because we're new. And that was good, and so I'm just planted in there. I'm coming in at 6 a.m. And, and getting in early, and she was there waiting, couldn't get me, and then somehow she had some, I don't know, some, some moles, as we call them, some people on the inside knowing which door I was going to leave out of chapel Friday, and boom, I'm just walking out. She just looks sweet and innocent like the girl that won today. I'm thinking, there's no way she's the person. She was pretending to be on her phone, or she was pretending maybe to read her Bible out there. Meditating on the depths and the riches of Isaiah 53. So I'm like, I mean, the Shekinah glory is going over there. She's not getting me. And I start walking away, and, and, and I was a determined walk, and yet I hear the steps. I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. This is it. This is the end. And I was truthfully, I was, um, I was just trying to keep the guy in front of me alive because I looked this freshman guy up, and I'll, I'll hack his name, but it, I was told he's from Israel, and I was pumped about that. And I was particularly burdened because last week, Pastor John was presenting Isaiah 53 and the love God has for his people, Israel. And I was like, I can't get this kid out. <laughs> that, would be, that would be some kind of punishment. So I'm going to leave this guy alone. And I was trying to protect, I think it was Eton or something like that. Uh, he's out, Chuck, you know the guy? He's up in your dorm. You know, I was trying to keep him alive. And I don't know if Abby got him or not, but... Um, Sorry, friend from Israel. <laughs> so it's, just, it's a joy to be working here at the Masters 
university. And with that being said, I'm done, because that's the only line I needed to nail, university. The master's university, I'm good. We can pray and get out of here because I didn't mess that up. But uh, it is sweet to be here, thankful for it. You're a, a joyful student body, and that moves me and encourages me. We've been here a little over a month, and uh, moving across the country from Hickory to back to Los Angeles, because we were here a little bit before that. Uh, it's a process, mostly because there's five of us now. We've got three little babies, and uh, I know that's first world problems. You know, that's, that's like, oh, Adam, you're suffering. How hard was it to book those tickets? Uh, but getting across the country was a little bit difficult when you got to pack up and, and move across. Mostly when it comes to, and you'll know this as some of you had this when you came here, maybe from out of state, you got to decide what kind of stuff to take with you. I mean, just bringing stuff becomes a challenge, particularly knowing cost of living and what I could get for my money out here in a house, we had to downsize. I mean, I was living life on the lake back in Hickory, 2,000 square feet, looking out over a pristine, it was Lake Hickory, but it was actually just a dammed up river, and looked out there, and I had space for my stuff, my kids, and then I was like, looking what I can afford out here, and, and if you come by our house over there, you'll see what we can afford, and it's small. So I basically just looking at square footage said, I got to cut everything I have in half. And that became a process of determining what really matters to me. What really matters? What has value? How I determined what to leave and what to bring was all about value. And there's two things that all of us, can we have common ground here, can say when we have to make decisions on what to keep or what to leave, it's a determination of value. What really matters to us? And there's, there's the external value. There's the things that you have that you actually can get some money for. In my line of work back in Hickory, I didn't have many things that I could get money for. Freely given, freely given back. I mean, when you're a new pastor in town, people are like, hey, take my junk. Pastor, we love you. Here's an old ratty couch from when I was in college. I was like, well, thanks, because I'm going to have high school kids in my house. They're going to trash it anyway, so I'll take that. But it was, it was easy to part with some of the lesser valued external things furniture I mean I'm just going to put this out there hopefully not offend anybody anything from Ikea I mean it, it looks nice on the front end you move a couple times all those little wooden rods are breaking off inside of the stuff how things that you sit on can be supported by little dial rods I don't know how they do it but you know Ikea and furniture and I'm a furniture snob because Hickory was the furniture capital of the United States but so I looked at good furniture and then I would go to Ikea and be like, it looks good, but man, in a, like a year, that stuff is done. I mean, you have it probably in your dorm room. It's busting. It's like the fruit stripe gum. I mean, it tastes good initially. Like, wow, that's flavorful. And then in like a minute, there's no flavor and you're spitting it out. And so Ikea furniture, we were parting with that mostly because when I was loading it, it was breaking into pieces. And so I'm done with that. But it was the value that I was appropriating to the stuff that was sentimental that was hard to part with. That I was like, that matters something to me. My collection of t-shirts from college, 20 years back, I mean, that, that mattered to me. It didn't matter to my wife, and she has been trying to rid our house of those. So brothers, can I help you out this morning? If you're collecting a lot of master's t-shirts with intramural stuff and your name on the back that you think is going to be awesome forever, just trust me on this one. Ten years from now, your wife will want to burn them. And they probably deserve to be burned. But those are the kind of things I was trying to hold on to that had some sentimental value that my wife's like, no. So really the only things I brought out here that mattered were books because I use my books to make a living as a preacher and I brought my family. And that was it. I mean, everything else, I mean, everything else could go. 
And what I want to talk to you about this morning is in the bigger scheme of things, after a few sermons this semester that all are revolving around this idea of Christ is all, it's one thing to see His value and to think about it and to know it, but it's another thing that in your affections and with your will and what motivates you to action, you actually appropriate the right value to Christ personally. Because we could be up here preaching it every time we come to chapel. And you could go to a local church and hear about the great treasure that Christ is. And you heard about that all week last week. I guess I forgot to thank Joe and Harry to put me up. Back before I was coming here, they picked the schedule, and they, they, they just sat around laughing probably, saying, okay, let's bring Dr. MacArthur for this week and the new guy after that. So I'm going to thank you guys personally. for They get John MacArthur Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the church relations director after that. So thank you. I, I forgot about that. Thank you. I wanted to throw that one in. But last week, you heard about the precious value of Christ. In fact, at the beginning of the week, you might remember Dr. MacArthur, if you look back at his notes, he said, I want to give you a gift this week. And he gave us a gift. He showed us Christ in Isaiah 53. And he said, basically, if you distill down all the important parts of the four Gospels, you get it in full here. And we saw last week how precious Christ is to us because he alone is our salvation. Forgiveness, redemption, glory, grace, the love of God, all of those were contained in what we saw last week in Christ. And it wasn't just that. I mean, if you rewind the tape before that, Joe Keller came and preached. And he told you about how Christ is our greatest help. He's our greatest peace. Philippians 4 shows us that. And Christ is all because in your hardest time, with the most anxiety you might feel as a young person in school, whatever you're going through, you know that Christ alone can give you peace. And if you rewind the tape further than that, back to when Harry opened up chapel, we were in Mark 5, and he showed you that Christ was all because he's all-powerful, and there's no person's life he cannot transform. And so we're hearing these great messages that Christ is all, all-powerful, all-peaceful, our great salvation. And I wanted to come this morning and just ask, though, honestly, from my heart, because I love you, and I don't know any of you that well yet, but just think about this this morning, whether you're taking notes or not. Is Christ precious to you? Is He your greatest treasure because He's your deepest joy? That's the preciousness of Christ. That all of that we've learned about so far in this short start to a semester. Just ask yourself today, all that truth, all those wonderful doctrines of Christ we've learned, is He precious to me? Is He a treasure to me? Because that, as we'll see in today's text, motivates what we do with Christ. So turn to Matthew 13. We're only going to look at one verse, so if you're gasping looking at the time, we have one verse to cover. It's Matthew 13, 44. And it poses the question to all of us today, the question to every person that wants to follow Jesus and use his or her life for his glory must be able to answer personally. Not because somebody feeds you the line. Somebody looks you in the eye and says, is Christ precious to you? Well, why is Christ precious to you? Why do you love him? How are your affections moved towards him? And I believe Christ in teaching this truth of this parable in Matthew 13, 44 answers that for us. So follow along in your Bible or on your phone, whatever you have. 
Look on somebody next to you to just see this wonderful truth about the kingdom of heaven, about our salvation in Christ. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What value is Christ truly to you? When you read this short parable of Christ, ask yourself the question, is He precious to me like He's presented as precious in this parable? Now some of you may know this already about parables. Some of you might not. I mean, parables were meant to be simple. They were meant to take great truths about the kingdom of heaven, about the kingdom of God that John the Baptist started preaching back in the beginning of Matthew. And then Christ came and preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he showed great signs and wonders and miracles to show he really was this long-awaited king. He was the long-awaited Messiah. And up to chapter 13 of Matthew, he is teaching truth plain out there for the crowds to hear whether they were a Pharisee or a Sadducee or just a regular old fisherman. Everybody was getting the same amount of teaching up until chapter 13, but something switched in chapter 12. Christ kept showing them, I really am the Messiah, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. He really was the long-awaited King. And yet, what happens in Matthew chapter 12? It reaches the high point of rejection when in 1224, the Pharisees heard about what Christ just did, casting out a demon of a man on the Sabbath. And they ask, or say, they didn't ask, they stated this. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Not a collective amen in the crowd, but a collective gasp. How could you accuse the man that comes proclaiming to be the Son of God, doing the work that only God could do, and you attribute it to the devil? This was it for those people. And so Christ in chapter 13 shifts gears into starting to teach in parables for one as a judgment upon these Pharisees who were rejecting Him. All of the plain teachings He put out before this, just explaining from the Old Testament, He was the Messiah. They're rejecting that right in front of them. And so the judgment for them was in Matthew 13, Christ says, you'll keep on hearing but not understand. You'll keep on seeing but not perceive. Disciples want to know, why are you teaching to us in parables now? It's because he says, to those who desire to know, I'll show more to them. But to those who are hardening their hearts against my teaching, th these parables won't be anything for them anymore. They don't have a teachable heart. There's nothing in them that will receive what I'm going to say. So now I'm going to speak in a parable, taking something true from life and, and putting it up against a spiritual truth. And you disciples, because you want to know, more will be given to you. But to the rest of these that don't want to know, it'll be concealed to them. And that's what a parable was for. And so what precious truth do we learn in Matthew 13, 44? Well, I want to break it down as simply as I can into four movements. First, we'll have an unseen treasure if you're taking notes. If not, you'll probably remember this just because it's one verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Then we'll see an unsuspecting man, which a man found and hid again. Then you'll see an undeniable affection right there. And from joy over it which will conclude in an unbelievable cost. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And there's one point to this story because that's what parables were meant to do. Not to give you various points, various meanings. They're not cryptic. 
but to the teachable person, and you might already have recognized it today. One point is that Christ alone is worth it all. Christ alone is worth it all. And the question is, with what we see in Scripture and think about, do we feel that about Him? And do we appropriate the value personally and the action we take with what we know about Christ to lead us to serve Him and live for Him and love Him? Is Christ your greatest treasure because He's your greatest joy? Let's just break this down real quickly and then I'll have a few ways to think about the Christian life moving forward from today relating to this one parable. First, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. It's an unseen treasure. And you know what? As you're going out to outreach week in a couple weeks, you'll see this. You have this treasure that you found in Christ, but you get around unbelievers, and you can say, I'm from the Master's University, and I'm a Christian, I'm from the church. They don't see that treasure. It hasn't been revealed to them. I mean, it's just talk to the person that doesn't know about the kingdom of heaven, about the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is the king that we've been waiting for, and that it'll come again one day, and he'll rule it all. It's unseen. And so if somebody were listening in Jesus' day and heard the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, you know, they would have understood that this is a rather common thing in their day. And you might have heard about this parable before, but a treasure hidden in a field wasn't something mysterious. It was quite common because if you were living in the time of Jesus, particularly if you were an Israelite in that area and you were used to enemies coming in, plundering your city, maybe carrying some of your family off, maybe carrying you off, you knew that the safest place for your most valuable treasures was to be hidden underground. You wouldn't keep them under the mattress. You didn't have a safe box. You put them in some type of vessel, some type of jar, in the middle of the night, went out when nobody's watching, dug up a hole in the ground, put a treasure down there, buried it, marked it, made a map to get back to it, and then you left it there. Because even if you got taken away sometime, Babylonians, Assyrians come, they invade, carry you off. You would say, you know what, even if I lose everything, I can get back to that place and find that treasure again. So if you think about, you know, in Matthew 25, when he's talking about the parable of the talents and he gives, a steward is being given money, the unfaithful steward in verse 18, what did he do? He who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Why? Because that was the safe bet. You just take what you have and you say, I don't want to lose this so I'll bury it. And so it would be common to have a treasure hidden in a field. That wouldn't have caught anybody's attention in the time of Christ. What would have stood out to them is what happened next, which a man found and hid again. This is like hitting the ancient Near East lottery. Because you would just be walking through a field, just minding your own business, and you're walking along and boom, you walk into something and you look down and say, I didn't just kick a rock, what is that? And you kind of move some dirt away and you're like, I think I found buried treasure. And so this was an unsuspecting man. He didn't have out his metal detector. He wasn't walking around looking for this. It found him, essentially. But immediately he sees, I, I got to do something with this. So what does he do? He says he hides it again. Or if you have the ESV, it says he covers it up. And why does he do this? Well, he, he knows this could be the chance of a lifetime. I mean, it doesn't even tell us in this story if he opens it to look. He just has a clue. This is something big. I have got to save this for later. Now, at this point in the story, some of you might be questioning the man's ethics. This doesn't belong to him. Well, back in this day and age, if somebody were to have found a treasure hidden in a field, and everybody knows people are hiding treasures in fields, it was fair game. If you found it, 
you get to keep it. Because think about this. If it's the person, if it's in a field and it belongs to the owner of it, that owner probably is going to have an eye out or he has some of his servants who own that field watching and making sure nobody's taking that. So you're not just going to get away with that easily. But in this man's case, it was just finding someone else's random buried treasure. They may have never been able to return because they got taken away. Nobody knows who it belongs to. So he evokes the ancient art of finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And even in extra biblical law, rabbinical law, there was a clause for this. If you found something out in a field, it was yours. So you thought finders, keepers, losers, weepers came around in our generation on the playground? No, it goes back to them. And so this man isn't unethical for doing it. In fact, what he does when he goes and buys the field shows that he was willing to cough up something for the field. He was going to go to the man that owned the field, and he was going to pay for it. And think about it. If the man that owned the field knew the treasure was in there, he would not sell it to him. So, for those of you that are in ethics class right now, and maybe had a little asterisk next to this passage, like, is this really in the Bible? It just seems it shouldn't be. No, the main point isn't to question the man's ethics. The main point of this is what we see next, an undeniable affection. This is the hinge point of this story. The affection of joy, and from joy over it. This is undeniable, uncontrollable, immediate. He sees this, and he needs to spring to action. This finding of a treasure in the field is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and he doesn't stop and wonder, is this going to be worth it? In fact, we move in the story to the unbelievable cost. He takes immediate action. He goes. He doesn't stand around. Maybe takes out his phone. I'm going to take a picture and put this on eBay and see what I can get for it. He goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Because he knew immediately, out of the joy he had, he had to take action and have this treasure. And this is the main point that faces us this morning. Whether it's been in chapel or your local church or even some of the classes that you get to take here. You're presented with Christ. I'm presented with Christ every time I open up my Bible and read about Him. This undeniable treasure. And for me personally, and maybe for you, it's not a matter of rationalizing by way of the truth. Is Christ worth it to me today? For me, I struggle with the joy. Do you? The affection. That when I look into God's Word and I see what Christ has done for me, purchasing my salvation, me, a sinner, being able to be made right with Him, knowing what my life would be without Him. And I appropriate that and say, joy just overflows in my life. The Gospel, the Kingdom of Heaven, the offer of salvation in Christ, yes, we know that's good news. But can I ask you something this morning because I love you? Is it joyful news to you? And you're like, wait a second, is there a difference between the two? I know my own pride and sinfulness. And I know there's sometimes in my life good news that's not joyful news. What I mean by that is, you know, I could hear of something good that happens to someone else. I can know it's good, and I could be, oh yeah, I could recognize that, but I might not be moved to joy for that person out of my pride. There might be something that I value more than that good news. Something good happens to someone else. But because it didn't benefit me, it's not necessarily joyful. Now let's make that jump to our own hearts when it comes to the gospel, the good news of Christ. We study it and know it and see it as good news, do we not? Yet, sometimes in our pride, sometimes in our self-righteousness, when we start to think, yeah, but I'm kind of pretty good, God. 
that good news may not be joyful news because you think you're already there. And when I know the Scripture shows me my own depravity and shows me like, it, like Paul would write about, the, the chief of sinners, then that good news is not just good, it's joyful news to me. Because I know without Christ suffering and paying the debt that I owe to God that we learned about last week, by His stripes I was healed. And that's really joyful news to me, the sinner. And that's where this parable comes in. Is he our greatest treasure because he's our greatest joy? The gospel really is good news because it's joyful news. And let me just encourage your heart this morning as mine has been in looking in the Scriptures that joy matters in your Christian life, brother and sister. Joy matters in your Christian life. And I'm not here this morning to like put a guilt trip of joy. Like, man, if you're not joyful, shame. Because I don't think joy is some thing that we can say like, oh, have you thought about the love of God lately? Oh, it's great to be loved by God. We should think more about the love of God or the holiness of God. Sometimes what's hard in the Christian life, of all the affections towards Christ, joy just seems like something like you either have or you don't have. Right? Like you just wake up sometimes and just don't seem pumped up to be a Christian, to put it really simply. And maybe that has something to do with a trial you're facing. And you wonder about God's goodness and how could you take joy in a trial. Or sometimes it's because following Christ has just cost you something. And you had to give up something that you thought you really had joy in for the better thing that Christ has to offer. But I just know in my own heart, sometimes I forget that Christianity is joy-centered. Joy matters in the Christian life. And I don't want you to think, oh, but it's just, Adam, you've just like proof texted. You found one verse in the Bible that shows it. Well, let me offer to you in the remaining minutes we have a few other evidences that joy matters in the Christian life and we should have a joy-centered Christianity. And I would love for this to encourage you today because the kingdom of heaven is this treasure and we have found it in Christ and we sometimes could lose that hinge point, the joy that we'd be willing to take everything we have and sell it for Christ and saying Christ is all but have I appropriated the value and is joy motivating it? Because that's the thing in the story. Joy is motivating the action. So let me show you a few other places in the New Testament where I believe we see that joy matters and that we should have a joy-centered Christianity. Not just in Matthew 13, 44. Turn over to Luke 15. Another set of parables that Jesus is telling A whole chapter dedicated to them. And sometimes in wanting to get to the good news of the parables and studying the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son, we miss that the first two verses set this up. Luke 15.1, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Our ears perk up. The tax collectors and the sinners, those are the people that were really interested in what Christ had to offer because he came to heal the sick. And then, verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. There's your lack of joy. Saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable saying. And so the first parable about the sheep that's gone missing, the guy leaves to go find it. In verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And he comes home and says, rejoice with me for I found my sheep which was lost. And then he tells them, and I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. 
Joy seems to be the theme of that story. The excitement and joy of somebody lost being found. How about the lost coin? Same type of setup. She loses one coins out of ten, or one coin out of ten coins. She finds it in the house. What's she do? She throws a party over finding a coin. Verse 9, when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I lost. Point of the parable, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We have a joy-centered salvation. And then the longer story of the prodigal son culminating when the father looks to the self-righteous older son in verse 32 and says, But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Our salvation, whether presented in the parable in Matthew 13, 44, or telling this story where Jesus is seeing these grumbling legalists, these Pharisees who are not excited that maybe these sinners and tax collectors will find the treasure in the field, he has to call them out and say, look, this should be something you rejoice in. Friend, take time this week, I would encourage you, to rejoice in your salvation. Because of God's grace in your life, Christ has found you. Because like the man in the story, what did you do to find him? Take time just to reflect and worship and praise, to be thankful that you found that treasure. And to know the the rejoicing that happens when any of us came into the kingdom of God. So there's joy in our salvation. But then, after that, it's not just like we throw the party, like they throw the party up in heaven, that, oh, another sinner has come into the kingdom of God. Our sanctification is joy-based sanctification. Again, don't believe me. Believe Jesus' words in John 15. You could turn there. Go right in your Bible to John 15. He's talking about the true vine and abiding in Him and telling His disciples in the upper room, look, you cannot survive the Christian life without staying close to me. And how do you stay close to Christ? Even though He's going to leave, He tells them, if you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. You'll bear fruit in this, verse 8 and 9. Abiding in me and my words abiding in you. And then verse 10, conjuring the idea of affections in our obedience. There's joy in our obedience. Why? Because he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. That's a really good thing. But then why did he tell this to them? What was the point of him going off in this direction and teaching the disciples in his final hours with them about abiding in him and following his commandments? What was the point of it all? He tells us in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy-centered sanctification. There is joy in obedience. But I know my own heart that it don't always feel that way. When I see what the Bible God's very word tells me I ought to do. And that might just be sins of commission, that I'm committing a sin, I shouldn't sin. But yet there's also the sins of omission. There's all these commands and scriptures that I'm not fulfilling. And it could seem like a heavy weight. But I have to remind myself that Christ, like he taught his disciples here, still today is trying to teach me that I will have a fuller joy, the joy of Christ in me, the more that I obey. I think about my four-year-old son, Amos. He has not figured out that dad really wants what's best for him. I mean, I love that my four-year-old son is happy. Because what's more, I mean, when you get around like a four-year-old, is it not just the sweetest thing to see four-year-olds having fun? Because they're they're not self-aware. They don't care who's watching. They're just getting after it. 
and having a good time. And I look at Amos and he's having a good time. But the moment he might do something that would not be for his good, something dangerous, where we're living down there now, we have rats in the back. We, we got a text the other day, hey, there's a rattlesnake loose on the back alley. Take, you know, just beware of that. Well, my son, I'm sure of it, would want to go out and play with the snake. And he would want to pet the rat. And my, my two-year-old boy, he has eaten a spider before. And so if he finds, and fortunately that was in Hickory, where it's the safe kind. You can eat that spider. I'm trying to teach Joey, don't eat spiders. He finds a black widow, because they're around here. I mean, some of you gasp, like, hey, guess what? You're in black widow territory. He tries to eat that thing, not going to be good. Dad puts the smack down and says, Joey, don't eat spiders. <laughs> he doesn't know that I'm working for his joy. I want him to be really happy. I don't want a big welt on his arm and run into the ER. And is God not like that with us for our greater joy? So many things we think are awesome and we want to do, and God, Hebrews 12 teaches us this, like a good father disciplines those he loves. Why? Because he wants our greater joy in him. There is joy in our obedience. There is joy in our evangelism. As you guys get excited to go out, Remember that you have the good news of the gospel and it's joyful news. Go to 1 John 1. The Apostle John writing this epistle wants these people to know that, hey, first and foremost, the reason I'm writing to you this, what the point of me writing this letter to you is, chapter 1, right out of the gates, he explains that we have experienced life in Christ. What we've seen and heard, verse 3, we proclaim to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us in fellowship with the Father and the Son, Christ. And why does he write this? Because there's joy in telling others the good news about Jesus, verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Why does he write this thing? Because he wants other people to know the joy that's in Jesus Christ. And flip over just a few pages to 3 John. There's not just joy in evangelism. There's joy in discipleship. He's not just excited about new people coming to Christ and knowing the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and fellowship in the body of Christ. 3 John 1, 4. I have no greater joy than this. And I picture, as he calls himself, the elder. John in his old age, the last living apostle by himself, writing this letter saying, I have no greater joy than this. What is it? Getting ready to go see Christ? Perhaps. Or to hear of my children walking in the truth. There's joy in evangelism, yes, and there is complete joy in discipleship. What a great opportunity you have amongst you here. Seniors with freshmen. Freshmen joining a ministry in your local church and discipling a high school kid. To have the full joy of making a disciple. And I speak as one who missed that opportunity. I don't think I made a disciple when I was, until I was 26. Yeah, I was always pumped up. I mean, I grew up in the 90s of evangelism explosion in youth ministry. It was all about telling people the good news and being really excited for that and then leaving them where they're at. And then, in my mid-20s, I got discipled. And I got to see that, you know what's the only thing that, like, that finishes is when you get the joy of leading someone to Christ and then the greater joy of seeing them grow in Christ and do that for someone else, right? So have you had the joy recently of making a disciple? To say, you know what, I have no greater joy than when somebody I've poured my life into is walking in Christ and finding joy in that. 
Uh, and those are some things that might be obvious. There's joy in our obedience, evangelism, discipleship. But there's also joy in suffering, according to James. Go to James chapter 1. You know this verse already. Go left in your Bible, just a few books. James 1. And he comes right out of the gates with this. James 1, 2. You've probably memorized it. Consider it all joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And as a preacher, this is a young preacher. This may be the point about joy that I am most cautious to preach. Because somebody that's out there right now in this audience that actually is going through a trial, this always isn't hard to believe. I mean, this, always, this isn't always easy to believe. It's hard to believe this. And I am cautious in preaching it only in that I know God has been so good to me that I, the trials that I hear some of you are going through and the trials that I know some of the staff here that I've known for a while have gone through, I mean, they've experienced this. And they're on the other side, and I would just commend, when you're around another believer who's walked through a trial, learn from them. I mean, just sit with them and listen to them and have them pray with you because they'll teach you something about walking through a trial and coming out on the other side and still having joy in Christ. So there's joy in salvation, there's joy in obedience, joy in evangelism, joy in discipleship, joy in suffering. And then my personal favorite, one of my favorite verses of Paul, Philippians 1, 25. I mean, this is just, this is kind of marching orders of any Christian that ever wonders, what, why don't we just go to heaven when we're saved? We're brought into this kingdom, it, it, there's so much joy in it, we'd sell everything we have to get it, can't we just go? Well, Paul asked that question in Philippians 1. He was sitting in jail writing this. And he did say, hey, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Why is death gain? Because living is Christ. I get more of Christ if I go. And so he says in verse 23 of Philippians 1, you know, I'm kind of hard-pressed between the two because I really deep down know that it would be better to be with Jesus. So what keeps him going when he was down here? Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. Talking to a believer, saying, I want you to keep growing, but joy in the faith. There in the joy-centered Christian life is fields ripe for the harvest of working for someone else's joy in Christ. Because you, I hope you're here this morning, and you have just amen this whole sermon saying, you know what? I am joyful today. Thank you, preacher. You could have said that. I could have walked out. I mean, I, I got it. I'm happy in Christ. And I'm thankful for that. But there could be a person next to you that's not. And you have the opportunity to work for their joy in the faith. And that gives so much meaning to our Christian life. When, when we, could be around, we could be going through a fine season of growth. God is good to us. We recognize His mercies have been new to us every morning. We haven't been through the trial recently, and yet you're in the dorm, and you, you know something's up with that brother or sister. And, and maybe, maybe just your primary motivation for reaching out to them is just to say, I, I want their joy in Christ to grow. I mean, there might be a sin to confront or something. Where there could be something heavy there. 
I know that I have had to check my motive as a pastor, that when I go to somebody knowing they're going through something, perhaps it's they're pursuing sin, and they want it, and I know i got to go there, but I still have to have as my motivation not to drop the hammer on them and lay the smack down and be like, no. If they're in Christ, I want to work for their joy in Christ. That's my motivation. And that gives us great motivation in our service to God. So I ask you again, as a fellow joy seeker, is your greatest joy in Christ, and is that motivating you for you to see all of life as joy-centered in Christ? That He's your greatest treasure because He's your greatest joy. One of my favorite theologians is Jonathan Edwards. And, you know, some people think as a, as a Puritan, you know, Puritans, they were not very happy people. They were kind of sad and, you know, maybe they were dour and they didn't, you know, walk around with a smile on their face. And Jonathan Edwards, though, I would say on the, you know, just being one that has read a lot and he has a book, Religious affections, that's my favorite because Jonathan Edwards talks about the affections. He says his, he's more concerned, and this is Jonathan Edwards, in the wake of the Great Awakening, George Whitfield comes through and he's preaching and mass amounts of people are declaring they want to be Christians, they want to follow Christ. Edwards is left in the aftermath with a church up in Northampton, about six, 700 people. I mean, they're sitting under Jonathan Edwards' teaching. Considered the greatest American evangelical intellectual. This would be some heavy duty if you read some of Edwards' sermons. This is some heavy material. But you know what he was most concerned about? You'll read it in the religious affections. That they didn't have affections for Christ. Not that they didn't know enough, but that it didn't move from here to here. And he says this, and I'll close with this. He wrote, Christians ought to be endeavoring by all possible ways to inflame their desires and to obtain more spiritual pleasures. Our hungerings and thirstings after God and Jesus Christ and after holiness can't be too great for the value of these things. For they, God and Jesus Christ, are things of infinite value. Did you catch that? He says our hungering and thirsting after God and Jesus and holiness can't be too great because of the value of them because they are of infinite value. And I would ask you this morning, can you out-hunger and out-thirst in your joy for Christ when Christ has infinite joy? I would dare you to try. I have to ask myself that question every day. I mean, Adam, do you really believe Christ offers you infinite joy in Him? Well, then take Him up on that offer and pursue Him for that end. You can't outjoy the infinite joy. Christ will be your greatest treasure because He's your greatest joy. When like the man, not looking for the treasure, finds it and in His joy says, I gotta have it. It's all to me, and I'll give my all for it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your grace and kindness to us in Christ. He is our greatest joy. He is our only true joy. Father, we know that the good things you give us in this life that we can celebrate and be thankful for will be one day ultimately surpassed by the great joy and hope and blessing we receive when we see Christ face to face. Thank you for these students. Thank you for the visiting students this day. Would you bless us as our endeavors in class and elsewhere would only lead us to trace the sunbeams of your joy back to the source, Christ alone. We love you and praise you and thank you. It's in his name we pray.